We are in the Gospel of Mark, as you know, in chapter 1. We're still in the chapter uh, that begins the Gospel. Just a couple of reminders about, <clears throat> about the uh, book of Mark. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, and it is the first uh, of the four Gospels. Written uh, 80, 49, 50, 51, it's very early compared to the other three. In addition, Mark is writing not to Jews, but writing to Gentiles, apparently those in Rome. It's very fast-paced, as you already know if you've been with me in the study so far. So I want to pick up in chapter 1, still in verse 35, uh, although I think we covered a little bit of that last time, and then move into chapter 2. Uh, a reminder as well, and you'll see that right away as, as we look at the, the material, Jesus is now in Galilee. And if you look at the map on page 5 of the packet, uh, which is really a very, very good map, by the way, it's the reason I chose it, but the, the base of Jesus' operations in Galilee is Capernaum. And although it will not be mentioned here, it will be mentioned several times. And Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, kind of in the center. It was a major, uh, a major commercial town. It was a major tax collection center. That's where Matthew was a tax collector, the author of the first gospel. And it also was uh, where there was a, 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 about 100 soldiers are stationed there, a Roman centurion who converted to Christianity, he had been converted to Judaism. All of those things are part of this context. And as you know, again, if you were in the last couple of weeks, um, chapter 1, starting with verse 21, he's in Capernaum. It's a very active, very busy ministry. And so Jesus is gathering quite a following. In verse 35, he does something totally unexpected at least in terms of the narrative. You don't expect it. And notice these four verbs in verse 35. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he, and that's referring to Jesus, he departed and went out into a desolate place, and there he prayed. Those four verbs, rising, departed, went, and then prayed. And so you see Jesus doing something that is a key to his perspective on ministry. And so I'll ask this question rhetorically. I'm not expecting you to answer it, but is Jesus interested in swelling the crowd or is Jesus interested in shrinking the crowd? I mean, to be a disciple, Jesus is not putting on a dog and pony show. Jesus is not doing something to just wow people. He is seeking disciples. And so when he goes up to this desolate place, it is more than, in Galilee, it's more than likely the hill area, it's almost really mountains, on the west uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee. Mount Arbel is there, it's quite a, a, a high mountain. He, that's probably where he's praying. And so the disciples, Simon, in verse 36, is leading him, and those who are with him, searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. <coughs> Excuse me. Everyone is looking for you. And the, the tone, we can't infer tone of their voice, but we can kind of guess at it. It would seem reasonable to conclude that the disciples are annoyed with Jesus. <clears throat> oh, my goodness. 
are annoyed with Jesus. They were thinking, my, my Jesus, you have this, you've swelled your following in Capernaum. Loads of people are following you, are interested, and you kind of think, isn't that what this is all about? And where's Jesus? He's up in a mountain praying. And so then the Lord responds, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And then Mark gives a summary, kind of a summary statement in verse 39. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Excuse me. And so you see... Again, back to the point I made just a moment ago, Jesus is not interested in in just wowing people and just doing fantastic things and gathering a large crowd, because ultimately that is not his purpose. His purpose is to present himself as Messiah and have people respond to him as the Messiah and to therefore he will be separating those people out from the common ordinary people of Galilee. And as Mark 39, uh, verse 39 tells us in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is traveling throughout Galilee. Now remember, Galilee is the region of the north. Galilee is the north, Samaria is in the center, Judea is in the south. And two years of Jesus, three years of public ministry are in Galilee. And so that's all Mark is, now we're done. And Mark is now going to move on to some very specific example, and it is a leper. Now, we are going to guess, we're going to infer, we're going to conclude that this is in Capernaum. The text does not specifically tell us, but if you look at verse 40, and a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, now, Leprosy, um, there's always a lot of discussion about that. The nature of leprosy, it is an actual disease. What is important is that leprosy, according to Leviticus chapter 13, made a person unclean in the Old Testament law, in the Mosaic law. And remember, before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Jewish people were still under the law. And so this is a man who's ceremonially unclean. To touch him would make you unclean, and you'd have to go through an elaborate ritual to be cleansed. So that he comes to Jesus is significant. But notice what he says at the end of verse 40 to Jesus. If you will, you can make me clean. So what what is important is the declaration you can make me clean. That's a statement of extraordinary faith. We have no idea how this leper knew of Jesus, what he heard of Jesus. We are assuming he lives in Capernaum, as I mentioned. We, we don't know that for sure. But it's, it's a remarkable statement. But it is preceded by a conditional phrase, if you will. So here's a statement of faith. You can make me clean, but it's up to you. And then, verse 41, Mark captures the emotion, the empathy, and the compassion of Jesus. Moved with pity, 
you could translate that Greek term compassion. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, men, just think about that for a minute. Why is it important that Mark chose to tell us that Jesus touched this man? As I said earlier, according to the law, Leviticus 13 is a good place to see that. According to the law, if you touch something or someone that's unclean, you become unclean. You have to go through elaborate rituals to be cleansed. But here is Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, touching a leper. He does not become unclean. He makes the unclean clean. And that is that sentence I just uttered is very important to the theology of this miracle. So it shows that he's above the old, the old covenant. That is correct. That is correct. He's above the law. And so he says, this Jesus now saying to this man, I will be clean. If you will, you can make me clean. I will be clean. And so Jesus very specifically responds to this leper in the language that he used, but more specifically, he who is the sovereign Lord of the universe does not become unclean. He makes the unclean clean. And so this, in some ways, is even a metaphor, an acted-out metaphor of what Jesus does in the salvation work, which ultimately will lead to the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection, and so on. He makes unclean people clean. This man had faith, and you see that in his, in his statement to the Lord, and Jesus honors that. And then look at verse 42. There's John, Mark's favorite word, and immediately, used 41 times in this, in this gospel, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said, see, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. Now, the Lord is being very specific here and, and actually quite categorical. He's asking this man, again, we're assuming it's at Capernaum. It may be in another one of the Galilean towns, but we're assuming it's in Capernaum. But he's very specific here. Don't spread the news that you're clean now. Do something first. Go to go to the priests and go through the ceremonial cleansing, all that is involved in that. And that is, for the most part, you could go to Leviticus chapter 14, and you would find there all that needed to occur, kind of an elaborate ritual. But notice the end, and I stressed that, notice the end of verse 44. There, there's a purpose for this, a purpose clause. Why do it this way? For a proof to them. Who's the them? The priests. To prove what? Men, this is an undeniable messianic miracle. As I stated when I was trying to go through it and explain it, 
what the man stated, how Jesus responded, and that he touched him. And the Old Testament prophecies declared, you will know the Messiah because he healed the sick. He will make the lepers clean. Jesus just did that. And so this is an undeniable messianic sign. And so Jesus, I've stated this before. I'm going to state it again. Jesus never did a miracle to show off. His miracles were always didactic. That's a wonderful word, but to teach a truth. And the truth is, I am the Messiah. And the proof that I am the Messiah is I'm doing what the Old Testament prophetic text said I would do. As they prophetically declared, look for Messiah. He will do this, 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 this. This is one of the things you do. So it's, it's a remarkably ap apologetic, didactic miracle. This validates who I am. And it is to the priests, the spiritual leader, among others, but part of the spiritual leadership of Israel, in this case up in Galilee. But look at verse 45. It's, it's almost a little humorous. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and the people were coming to him from every corner. And there's, again, despite what the Lord wanted to occur, is not occurring. People are just swarming to be around him and, of course, to see him do these messianic miracles. And so chapter one then ends, as I said, I believe I used this term, actually, I think it's in your notes. Mark is like a docudrama. It's just bang, 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 event, event, uh, miracle, miracle. And it's quick. It's, it's very pithy. It's sharp. It's over. And so chapter one, we've been introduced to Jesus. We've been introduced to John the Baptist. We've been introduced to a couple, I think, I believe four of the disciples so far, plus some of Jesus' Messianic miracles as he shifts now to Galilee and is the center of his Galilee. So, uh, question, Jim. Yes, please. Um, so, what you may have covered this when we when we went through John as well, but what what drove the people to be that hungry for the message, for his message? That, that these people just flocked to him. What drove? What was culturally significant about? whether it was the Pharisees, Sadducees, and how they were um, ruling over the Jews, or was it the Romans, or what was really driving that, that they, were, that they were that attracted to him? Well, the answer to your question is multifaceted, really, Glenn. Um, you sort of intimated in some of them. Number one, we know this from both the Bible as well as a lot of extra-biblical literature. There's really quite a, quite a few of these. The first century, the early decade, the really end of the first century BC and the beginning of the first century AD, the way we would date things, uh, was filled with a lot of false messiahs. There, I mean, there were, I could name several of them. Uh, really incredible. So the messianic fervor, if, if you follow what I mean by that phrase, messianic fervor is very, very high in both Galilee and Judea. And so for Jesus, to be doing the things he's doing and saying the things he's saying is, is 
is going to actually be a part of that messianic fervor because he is obviously the true Messiah. But it's high. And part of, this is the second part of the answer, part of what's driving that messianic fervor is Roman occupation. I mean, Rome began to occupy this area of the world in, you know, about 39 BC is when they started to move in, Pompey moves in. And then, of course, their rule is oppressive, taxation is high. So that desire to be free from Rome's oppression, Rome's rule, is a part of the high messianic fervor. And thirdly is the ministry of John the Baptist, which is setting up. That's what he did, prepare the way, cut a path, all those Old Testament phrases. John the Baptist did that. And so all of those three things are kind of coalescing and coming together. And, you know, Glenn, the other aspect of this is just human nature. And what I mean by that is when something something fantastic is happening, people go to see it. <laughs> you know, people will flock to see it. And it, it it's part of just that human nature. But all of those things coming together, messianic fervor is very high in the first century. And with Jesus being in Galilee now, doing what he's doing, saying what he's saying, it just fits with that expectation. Is he really the Messiah? We've been let down so many times. And so people are going to check the story out. To, to Is what people think, is he really doing these things? And so people are drawn to that. So that's my best answer in trying to deal with your question. Okay, one, one follow-up then. Is that also why, well, we saw in John, the, the outright, almost combative nature of Jesus with the Pharisees. Uh, with this messianic fervor, is that part of what had the Pharisees' response as hard back at him as it was because there were these uh, yeah. false messiahs? I think so. And um, as, as you know, th- they are not accepting Jesus at all. And I think Jesus, and, uh, this is just, he's a God man, he knows all things, but the expectation is that if anybody would respond to Jesus, it would be the spiritual leaders of the day. Because they knew the prophetic texts. They knew the Old Testament texts. But obviously, as you already know, that if it's anyone that is going to be harder on Jesus and their hearts even more hardened against Jesus, it is the Pharisees and scribes. So, yeah, it's just a, it's the dynamic of all of this is remarkable. And we have a lot, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but we have some extra-biblical material that validates a lot of what is going on in Galilee and Judea. And those expectations are very, very, very high. All right. Let's move in to chapter 2 in the Gospel of Mark. Now, chapter 2 and into early parts of chapter 3, Mark picks up on a new theme. And that theme is conflict. And what I mean by that is, how are people responding to Jesus? We have seen Jesus doing a number of things in Galilee, which we just read another one uh, right before we crossed in chapter 2. But what Mark is going to do is he's going to take five episodes here, five episodes in Jesus' Galilean ministry, and what he's going to do is he's going to zero in on the growing conflict that Jesus is creating. 
conflict within the society and conflict between the leadership and Jesus. Everything Jesus does creates conflict. And Mark is going to focus on this in five key episodes. Let's see if we can get, I don't think we can get all five of these done. Excuse me. But I believe we can get several of them done. Let's look at episode number one in this developing theme of conflict. And it's verse 1 of chapter 2 through verse 12, the first episode. Now notice how Mark does this. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So if you if you want to look at this, if you're interested in it, the map on page 5 of your notes just shows you again where Capernaum is. But Mark says, there's a part of he was at home. What does that mean? Jesus doesn't own a home in Capernaum. What, what does that mean? Most expositors, and I would be one of those, believe that this is Peter's house. We, we know that Peter's house, we know where, actually, we actually know where Peter's house was. I've, I've been there many times in my life, and it, it's just right down from the synagogue there in Capernaum, which we also, you also can see if you ever visit that. So when it's, oh, he's probably at Peter's house. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So people in Capernaum are coming to Peter's house. And what is Jesus doing? He was preaching the word to them. So it's this kind of a remarkable situation to try to envision. If you ever go to Capernaum, if you ever get to Israel and you go to Capernaum, you'll go to see Peter's house. The Roman Catholic Franciscans have built, it looks almost like a spaceship, but they built a church right above Peter's house. It's elevated and so on. But you can, it was a fairly good-sized home. He was a prosperous fisherman, so that would be the reason. But he's preaching, and there's a fairly good crowd that's gathered around in the street, it's a fairly wide street, and they and at the door and so on. So what happens? Verse 3, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let the bed of the paralytic, which the paralytic lay down. Now, a couple of comments about the structure of a house like this in the early first century. The, the homes were flat. I'm sorry, the roofs were flat. And they would have been made of one of two things or a combination of the two. A, a roof made of grass and clay mixed together, like a thatched roof, clay and grass roof, or clay tiles that were, you know, kind of held together by pieces of wood called, called lathe. And so it's hard to know which, which kind of a roof Peter's house would have had. I mean, he was a prosperous fisherman. It could have been clay tile roof, but you just lift those tiles up. That's not difficult. And if, it's, if it is like a grass, clay, thatched roof, too, you can lift that up and then let the man down. And so you have this, really, it would have been an astonishing thing to witness. You know, there's a fairly large crowd around Peter's house, 
and people can't get the paralytic man to Jesus. So what do they do? They climb up on the roof and let he, let some of the tiles up or whatever and let the man down. So right in front of Jesus is a paralytic man. How does Jesus respond? Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, that's the operative word. Not what they had done, not the mess they've made of Peter's house, but their faith. Because obviously these four men who brought this paralytic, these four men have the faith that Jesus can deal with their friend. And that's what Mark stresses. We saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now you ought to underline that. Jesus is not dealing with his paralytic physical state. Jesus is dealing with his paralyzed spiritual state. He's a sinner. But because he exhibited faith, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now here's the conflict, verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there. Remember, scribes are, most of the scribes were Pharisees. They were teachers of the law, questioning in their hearts. Notice, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, there is an illustration of Jesus' omniscience. He knows all things. He knows what's going on in their minds and their hearts. It's a powerful illustration of Jesus, the God-man. Meet Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned themselves, said, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, just think about that for a minute. It's a, it's a rhetorical question that Jesus is asking, but think about it. Which is easier to say? Well, it is easy to say your sins are forgiven, because there's no evidence that they are or they are not. Take up your bed and walk is not necessarily an easy thing to say, because the assumption is if you say it, the man's going to pick up his mat and walk. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a double-pronged question. Well, it depends on your perspective. Because at another level, your sins are forgiven. Only God can say that. And that's the point Jesus is making. And so he goes on in verse 10 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, I want to make a couple of comments about verse 10. First of all, Jesus chooses to use an, a title, a messianic title, that's connected to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. 
one like the Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days and received authority, a dominion, and a kingdom. So that Jesus is choosing that title, Son of Man, to refer to himself means I am the Messiah. There is, it's categorical. There's no lack of clarity of what Jesus is doing here. This isn't ambiguous. It is very clear what Christ is doing here. That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so Jesus is going back into the Old Testament, a fantastic prophetic text, Daniel 7.13, and applying it to himself in a very, very clear sense. I am the Messiah. And then he says, now, because I do have that authority, I'm going to heal this man. Say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And immediately he rose, picked up his bed, went out before all of them, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never, we never saw anything like this. So, Jesus is doing something here that is arguably one of the most messianic things he's done, not only in healing the man, but first in forgiving his sins, and two, identifying himself as the Son of Man of Daniel 7.13. And in doing that, he's given, again, irrefutable proof of who he is. And so, this visible miracle, healing the paralytic, is evidence of the invisible miracle that he can forgive sins. Jesus' words and Jesus' works are always inextricably linked to give didactic proof, teaching proof of who he is. And that's why this is a masterful illustration of how the words of Jesus are linked to the works of Jesus to make a key theological point. I am the Messiah. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a marvelous paragraph. But as I, as I was arguing at the beginning of our study of chapter 2, Mark is beginning to focus on a different theme now. It's the theme of conflict. Jesus' words and works are causing conflict. How's Jesus handling that? And this is the first illustration of it in, in the, this is the first of five episodes that will extend into chapter three. All right, before we move to the second source of conflict, the second episode of conflict, are you with me? Do you have any questions? I do have a question I'd like to go back. Yes, Woody. Um, this page four that I have of that outline I'm having a little trouble following it. Uh, it uh, do you have that page available to look at for a second? Um, what did you say, page four? Yes, I have it in front yes. of me. And that has a map near the top. Yeah. That's a question. Yes, uh, on page five is the map, right? Uh, no, I have it on four. Okay, okay, you probably, I'm sorry. Yes, I see where you are now. The map on page four is of John the Baptist's ministries, yes. Okay, well, you see where it says A, the initial ministry of Galilee? Yes. 
and somehow we got from uh, chapter 114 to 434 is what it says, initial ministry in Galilee. Yes. And then uh, that that's A. And then B says Jesus withdraws from Gallus, uh, Gallus, yes. Galaxy. Right. 35 to 950. That's right. Really? So then you've got this first withdrawal, the second withdrawal, and the third yeah. withdrawal. Right. With no no mention of anything in in uh, chapters three and well and two yeah, and three. Would he would he go back in the in the middle of page five there? Go back to letter A, the initial ministry in Galilee, chapter one verse fourteen through chapter four verse thirty four. See that would be chapter one verse fourteen and all of chapter two, all of chapter three, and all of chapter four. That's that's not the way mine are numbered. Uh, I'm, I, I must have done something wrong when I printed it out or something. Okay, I mean, it should have A, the initial ministry in Galilee, comma, 114-434. In other words, it's no, all of page, those. My page five uh, begins uh, Jesus' ministry to Judea, 10-1 to 13-37. I just, I, I, hate, I even hate to bring this up because I've interfered with your. No, <laughs> well, that's all, that's all right. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what to say, uh, because at the bottom, now see, this is my page four. At the bottom of my page four, <clears throat> Roman numeral two, Jesus ministering Galilee, chapter one, verse fourteen through chapter nine, verse thirty. And then you go to page five, you have the breakdown of each one of those parts of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And we're right in the middle of, the, of letter A, the initial ministry in Galilee, 114 through 439, or 434. Okay, I see nothing mentioning anything about the, the book uh, two or three. Well, so I, I must not have the right pages. So no, I... <laughs> Let's go. Let's go back to the, somebody else was asking a question. Okay, we'll All talk right. later. Okay. Before you leave, I did have one question. Please, yes. Yeah. Back up where it says uh, some men came bringing him a uh, paralytic carried by four of them. Can me that. Right. In other words, you got some men. Of which four of them were carrying. Could could there be more than four then? Probably. Um, yeah, it's it, it definitely. Um, it says in I read the ESV translation, verse three reads, "And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men." So the they, uh, I forget how your translation has it, but the they, it's definitely more than just four. But it's a no, the number, Bill, we, we don't know the exact number, but it's a fair, probably a fairly large group. It, that's why some suggest it's this paralytic man. It's, it's members of his family and perhaps some friends that are bringing him to Jesus. But, you know, it, he's, on a, he's like on what we would call like a stretcher, and there are four men carrying him, you know, one at each point of the stretcher. But, yeah, there's probably more than just the four that are bringing him, the, bringing this paralytic man to Jesus. Is yeah, that 
get, it, get yep. to it. Okay, good, good. All right. Well, Woody, I, I'm sorry you're having trouble, but can I move on? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I give you my blessing. <laughs> okay. Please do. Now, now I'm in, again, we're in the initial ministry of Jesus in Galilee, which we start in verse 14. Now we're into chapter 2, where this ministry in Galilee is continuing. But in chapter 2, what Mark is doing in Galilee Jesus' ministry of his teaching and his miracles is creating controversy. We saw the first one, now the second one, verse 13, the second episode of conflict. He went out again beside the sea. He is Jesus. The sea is the Sea of Galilee. And you can see that on the map, a couple of the maps that I've given you, but the one I'm looking at is in page 5. And as he passed by, uh, excuse me, uh, he went out beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, th this is, is quite important. Let me embellish this a little bit. Let me explain some of this. First of all, Levi is the Jewish name for Matthew. This is Matthew, who will write the gospel according to Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, as a matter of fact, let me explain something about this. The tax collectors, you, you, bid, you bid for that responsibility to collect taxes for Rome. And the highest bidder would get the right to collect the taxes. And this is Capernaum. This is in that region of Galilee. Rome would assign a block of money that had to be collected from that region. And so what the tax collector would do, who would win the bid to be the tax collector, he could collect any tax amount he wanted as long as he paid what the obligation to Rome. What would he do with the rest of it? He'd pocket it. And that's what tax collectors were absolutely hated, <laughs> whether you're in Galilee or, or, or Judea. And so Jesus, when it says sitting at, the, uh, when, and Mark says here in, in verse 14, that Levi, remember that's Matthew, that's his Hebrew name for Matthew. Matthew is sitting at the tax booth. What does that mean? Well, that's a really good translation because they would erect for the tax collector along the major road, there was a major east-west road in Capernaum, a booth. I mean, it was a, not, a, not a, a shack, but a fairly stable, well-built tax collecting booth. And every Jew was expected to pay the head tax, was expected to pay certain taxes throughout the year on their property, and so on. And so Matthew is collecting the taxes there. And you had to show, if a Roman soldier stopped you, you had to show proof that you paid the tax. And so this is absolutely astonishing. Now, again, Mark gives a very quick, short, fast-paced account. And what he does, we have no background on Matthew. We have no background how many times had Matthew met Jesus. Was Matthew familiar with Jesus? 
Well, from some of the other Gospels, we know he was. This isn't the first time Matthew met Jesus. All Mark is interested in is one thing. Matthew, Levi, ends his tax business and follows Jesus. That's all he's interested in. And so, follow me, he arose and followed Jesus. Now, what happens subsequent to this that's going to cause the conflict? Verse 15, Matthew's account in the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew decided to follow Jesus, he threw a big banquet. And he invited all of his friends, and more than likely, some of the people who worked for him, as well as other leaders in the community at Capernaum. And so verse 15 is the account of that banquet. And as he reclined at table, at his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And so what you have here is Matthew has invited his friends, a lot of other people, to meet who? Jesus and his disciples. Now, Matthew was wealthy, uh, tax, all tax collectors were, so he had a large home, and so he's opened his home. It would have had a pretty large courtyard and a large banquet room. And remember, they're reclining. You, you recline, leaning on your left elbow as you ate. And so the picture is they're reclining at this table. Jesus, I would probably suggest, Jesus is, is at the right of Matthew. As Matthew is reclining, with your feet going out perpendicular to the table, Jesus is right beside him, because usually the honored guest would be to the right of, of the owner of the home, the, the, the host of the dinner. And I, I'm inferring that, but I think that's pretty reasonable. But look at this, Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so what that tells us is it could be more than just a twelve. So, I mean, this is really, this is a remarkable, <laughs> this is quite an, an astonishing thing to try to get in your mind a picture of what this would have looked like. Now, what happens? Here we go with the scribes again, and the scribes of the Pharisees. Remember, the scribes were the teachers. Uh, they also copied the law, but these are kind of the authoritative teachers. Scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now, again, the Lord is very much in control of the situation, and you can see that in each one of these items of conflict, where Jesus does something or says something, it creates conflict. Here, he's eating in the home of a tax collector, loathed and hated by the Jews. In addition, there are a lot of other people who are not Pharisees that are also at the banquet. But presumably, there are some scribes, and they're ticked off at Jesus. So they don't go to Jesus, they go to his disciples. What, why is he eating with all these tax collectors and these sinners? 
By the way, the Pharisees typically use the term sinners to refer to all non-Pharisees. That's <laughs> a pretty big group. And the Lord responds powerfully. I am here to deal with the sick. And obviously, the sick are sinners. But when Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, that could be understood as a dig at the scribes and the Pharisees, because they perceived themselves to be righteous. From Jesus' perspective, they're not, but I'm not calling them, I'm calling sinners. People who admit their sin, are convicted of their sin, and respond to me. And so, again, what you have in this second conflict that Mark records for us in chapter 2 is you have what Jesus is doing socially in eating a meal at a tax collector who's now one of his disciples when he throws a banquet, when Matthew throws a banquet, creates controversy. How can he be eating with the dregs of society? Jesus responded, I don't come for the righteous, or the perceived righteous, or those who think they're righteous, but for those who are sinners. All right, let's see if we can do one more before we're done for the day. The third conflict in chapter 2, remember chapter 114 through the end of chapter 4, is the initial Galilee ministry of Jesus. We're still in the early parts of that ministry. Now, John's disciples and Pharisees were fasting. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Fasting is something taught in the Old Testament law. In Leviticus 16, verse 29, the law required that you fast on the Day of Atonement. That is the major legislated fast of the Old Testament. Now, you know what a fast is. You, you do not eat for a period of time, a day or a, a week even, usually a day. It's a day of fasting, day of atonement. Now, the Pharisees, the Pharisees promoted and taught voluntary fast every Monday and every Thursday. So presumably, good Pharisees fasted on Mondays and fasted on Thursdays every week. It was an act of piety on their part. And they were very proud of their fasting, and Jesus addresses that in Matthew chapter uh, 6. And the, fa the Pharisees fast, they do to, to be noticed by people. They, they, they want everybody to know they're fasting. So when Mark introduces this, you have two groups fasting. Now, when he says John's disciples, who's that? That's John the Baptist's disciples. And they are fasting according to the Old Testament law. The Pharisees are fasting according to their application. Whereas acts of piety, every Monday, every Thursday, you fast. And the Pharisees are encouraging a lot of people to do this. So Mark is just saying there are two groups of people that are fasting. Those who are disciples of John following the fast of Leviticus 16, 
and the Pharisees, who are doing their own acts of piety according to their tradition, this is not mandated in the Old Testament. And every week on a Monday and a Thursday you fast. That is not mandated in the Old Testament. But the Pharisees were doing that. Okay, so the, the context is fasting. Continuing now in verse 18. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Meaning, remember, like there's concentric circles of Jesus' disciples. There's the inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. Then there's the next circle of the 12. And then there's another circle of the 70. And then you have a larger circle, which is an unnumbered group of disciples. So in this context, we're not sure which group he's referring, but at least it's referring to the 12. And so these people, they're unidentified. We don't know who they are, but they're perplexed. Hey, just a minute, Jesus. John's disciple, John the Baptist's disciples fast. The disciples and their, the Pharisees and their disciples fast, but your disciples don't. Now, how did Jesus respond to this? This is very important theologically. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. All right, so, so what's Jesus doing? I mean, he's taking an extremely common uh, example in the first century, and that would even apply today. Pious people, devoted religious people, don't fast at a wedding. They, they don't fast at a joyous occasion like a wedding when the bridegroom is with them. That's crazy. Nobody fasts. But once the wedding is over, and once all the festivities are over, then they go back to their normal acts of religious piety. I want to comment what Jesus meant by taking away from them in just a minute, but let me go on to his application. Verse 21. Now again, you have to try to imagine yourself in the first century because you and I don't have these things. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tears made. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, the first illustration is very typical. My wife uh, has a, a pair of jeans that she wears outside when she's working in her garden. Well, those jeans got a hole in them. So what did she do? She put a patch on them. But Jesus is saying she didn't put, she bought the patch, but she didn't put a piece of unshrunk cloth or, you know, new on that old garment. It'll tear it. It'll tear it out. And Jesus is saying the same thing. You, 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 you're going to be careful what you patch a garment that's torn. You're going to be careful the patch you take. 
And then for you and me, this is even a little more difficult. But in the ancient world, they didn't put wine to store it, that is. They didn't put it in jars and put a tight cap on it and seal it. They put it in wine skins. And as the wine fermented, the skins would expand. And then you, when it's time and the fermentation is over, then you use the wine. But you can't then take that same old wine skin and put new wine in it. Because if you put new unfermented wine in and start to ferment, it's going to burst the old skin. And so what's Jesus saying? And that's it. He's done. What is he saying? I represent the new covenant. I represent the new order of things. You are focusing on the old order of things. The Old Testament fasts and the fast prescribed by the pious Pharisees. My disciples don't do that because they're part of the new order of things. And you don't put the old with the new. And so the old covenant is the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. The new is the new covenant which Jesus Christ will inaugurate. Who are his disciples? Are they with the old covenant? Or the new covenant. They're with the new covenant. And Jesus will say over and over again, I am the bridegroom. And so when he uses that illustration in verse 19, I am absolutely convinced at first they didn't get this, particularly his disciples. They will later on. So when he uses the bridegroom, he is the bridegroom. Believers are the church, and when he is taken away, then they mourn, then they fast. But not now. Jesus is still with them. The bridegroom is still here. You don't mourn and fast. They're not expressions of sorrow. And so Jesus is laying down on the doctrinal table for his followers and for these these individuals who are posing this question, the contrast between the old order and the new order, the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. Jesus inaugurates the new covenant. So why would I have my followers follow the old covenant fasts? They are not identified with the old. They're now identified with the new. And that new is the new covenant, which Jesus Christ will inaugurate. Now, men, does that make sense to you? Do you have any questions about that? Does that make sense, what the Lord is doing here? Yep. yep. Okay. All right. <laughs> what time is it here? All right. Um, if there are no other questions, let me introduce this fourth issue of conflict Remember, this is in the Galilean ministry of Jesus, chapter 114 through the end of chapter 4. We're in the middle of that. And this is now the Sabbath. I'm going to introduce this. I'm not going to get all this done because of time. Verse 23, one Sabbath, so we don't know the exact date. We don't know the exact time. Mark is just saying on the Sabbath, he would be Jesus, was going through the grain fields, 
And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. What does that mean? Let's, let's assume it's wheat. I, I suppose it could be corn, but it's probably wheat. And what are they doing? This is the Sabbath. Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. That's the Sabbath. And so it's more than likely it's during the day, morning or afternoon. They're moving from one place to another, and the disciples are grabbing some of the heads of grain and eating it. And verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, the situation is his, his disciples are picking heads of grain, eating because they're hungry. The Pharisees, how they knew about this, I suppose they saw it, or maybe people told them about it, we don't know. But what's their focus on? These guys are hungry, they need sustenance to, to sustain their bodies. That's not what they're focused on. What they're focusing on, now listen, when they take their hand, grab some grain, some stalks of grain, either shake it or pull it off, they're working. And you don't work on the Sabbath. And it's really quite astonishing, as you're going to see in just a minute. But this is nitpicking of the law. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25 says, if you are hungry, it is permissible to feed yourself or your family, even if it involves menial work, because sustaining life is more important than working on the Sabbath. If you need to do work to sustain life, Deuteronomy 23 says that's acceptable to God. So what are the Pharisees doing? They're going beyond the law, as they so typically do. How can you legitimize this is what they're saying to Jesus. Your disciples working, quote, unquote, on the Sabbath. Now, if you want to know how Jesus responds to this, you got to come back to next week's class. Isn't that great? I can leave you hanging. Perfect. Okay? It gives you an incentive to come back to class. All right. Is, are you with me on, on all this? We have three full items of conflict down. We're in the middle of the fourth one. We have one more to do, which we'll also complete next week. All right. If there aren't any questions, then I'm going to say a, a word of prayer, and, and I'll let you go. All right? Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Thank you. We have the privilege and the honor of studying it together. Thank you for these men uh, and their willingness to take part out of their Wednesdays and be a part of the class. Thank you for each one of them. Uh, take care of them, watch over them through the rest of this week. Help them to be strong men of faith and strong men of God who love you, who seek to represent you in this dark world. May we have the grace, may we have the enablement and strength to be all you want us to be for the glory of your Son. So we commit all this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, man, I'll see you next week.